Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We recently released episodes on Thor, Love, and Thunder, Stranger Things, and we have more in the works. You can find it at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here with Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. We're here to talk about hostile aliens, both recent and vintage, and why we're afraid of them. Before that, however, we should talk about a problem raised by this week's pairing. We can't repeat ourselves. We're happy with what we have lined up for this week, but our main selection could have also worked with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or Jaws, or The Host. The only problem? We've done all those already. Is anyone else worried we're going to run out of movies? I'm not, but also we could have done contact with this too. We could we also, yeah. and uh, signs. Well, we haven't signs, done signs. If, so. we, if we were willing to to give classic status to uh, <laughs> to signs, we could have put, we could have done that as well. Yeah, that that's the issue. We're not going to run out of movies, but we're going to run out of good movies because there are only about sixty of those. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, really. Anything anything past sixty on the sight and sound one hundred is uh, garbage. <laughs> Marginal. I don't know why they didn't make it the sight and sound 60. It was just, it was right there. That's it was right. so obvious. In the mood for love, terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, is that, is that like 61? I don't That's know. the cutoff I, point. I assume that. Actually, you know, I think that might have actually re- it made it into the, into the top 50 this time. But anyway. Yes. Also covered on the show. That's true. It could, could be, could be trouble. But, be, but, you know, to our credit, I think War of the Worlds was the first thing that kind of came up, mm-hmm. right? When we were talking about potential pairings with this. Because I mean, we didn't really know what to expect from nope so it's sort of like let's try the sort of prototypical alien invasion story and that that ended up being war of the worlds which was a fun feeling by the way i mean i'm all for more mystery box let's not give away the story in the trailers you don't you go in not knowing what to expect uh kind of movies like it seemed fairly clear that this was going to be an alien invasion thriller of some kind but i was entirely open to going in and and finding out that the whole thing was some kind of trick and uh i don't know uh benedict cumberbatch was going to show up as khan again and we've just been lied to 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's basically I basically said, why don't we do this based on seeing a flying saucer in the trailer, which fortunately I think it's it's worked out for us pretty well. But I'm now I'm kind of imagining a future where we're just we've just run out of movies and we're pairing something with Sonic the Hedgehog or something. I mean, it it could it could happen, <laughs> right? I don't think that that's actually going to happen, but there there are maybe a limited number of movies that are such classics that filmmakers just keep reaching for them over and over and over. Like it's it's really hard to make a monster movie without feeling like you're echoing Jaws in some way. And Bong Joon-ho did it with the host, but this kind of has elements of the host as well because of, of the places where it does resist being Jaws when it's not kind of being Jaws. So, you know, it's not that we're going to run out of movies, but we might start to run out of movies that the filmmakers we like most right now are specifically referencing because they're the classics of the genre, the, the standout classics. Yeah, I mean, I think the solution is if, is if basically if the four of us all forget that we've done it before, then we can do it again. <laughs> That's the solution. Yeah, we are several years into this. I, I often forget what we've done. Like what, what we did, the host was... Godzilla, right? What would we do Jaws with? The uh, Meg. Oh, the Meg. The host was Parasite. Mm, uh, that's true. The host was Parasite, I think. Oh, the host, host was yes, Parasite. Host okay, was, okay, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And Close Encounters. Was... Well, I don't think we're we're at too much risk of forgetting what we've done uh, just because we've got, you know, Librarian Genevieve on our side. <laughs> so she's going to keep us honest. That's true. Yeah. All right. Well, fortunately, we did find some movies that make sense together. Genevieve, can you tell us about this week's pairing? This week, we'll be discussing two films about humanity's first encounters with alien life. Encounters that don't go all that well. First, we'll talk about the 1953 film War of the Worlds, directed by Byron Haskin and produced by animation and special effects pioneer George Powell. An adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1898 novel about some hostile Martians intent on taking over the Earth, it moves the action to contemporary California, making it the site of a mysterious meteor crash that turns out to not be a meteor at all. Can a team of scientists led by Gene Barry's Dr. Clayton Forrester save the Earth from doom? Then we'll discuss Nope, the latest film from Jordan Peele, which tells a different sort of flying saucer story. Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer star as rancher siblings in the family business of supplying horses to Hollywood productions, whose close encounter is shared by others operating on the fringes of show business. But is a run-in with hostile aliens ever just a run-in with hostile aliens? Are there other forces at work in both films? Assuming this podcast doesn't get disrupted by otherworldly magnetic forces, we'll try to find some answers after the break. This could be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guard, you need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant! Look! They slash across country like scythes, wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Guns, tanks, bombs, they're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. 
As the War of the Worlds is essentially a cautionary tale, each generation gets its own adaptation of H.G. Wells' classic account of extraterrestrial invasion. That's critic Jay Hoberman writing in the, his Criterion Collection essay for the 1953 adaptation of Wells' novel. That's not always entirely by design. Orson Welles' Halloween 1938 adaptation, a kind of mockumentary before anyone coined the term, sent at least some listeners into a panic. But would they have been as edgy if they weren't living in a time threatening to erupt into a Second World War? In Welles' words, that added paranoia is purely coincidental. At the end of the broadcast, he broke character to assure his audience what they just heard, quote, has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying, boo. Not that Wells was necessarily telling the truth, or that he could control what influenced his work or how others interpreted it if he wanted to. By contrast, Steven Spielberg's 2005 adaptation consciously drew on images from 9-11 and its aftermath, from the out-of-nowhere attack and subsequent panic to the paranoia and violence that followed. Paramount's 1953 version falls somewhere in the middle. It's a heart-of-the-golden-age science fiction movie blown up to a global scale first and foremost, but it's also a product of its times in other ways as well. Released in a decade trying to put some distance between itself and the Second World War, this War of the Worlds opens with reminders of the tumult of the previous decades before depicting a different sort of war. Only this is one from which humanity might not be able to escape, no matter how hard it tries, be it by might or ingenuity. It is very much a War of the Worlds for the 1950s, the first decade fully in the shadow of the possibility of nuclear annihilation. The film also imagines an extremely 1950s sort of apocalypse, one beginning in square dances and tame flirtation in the middle of a picturesque, remote Southern California small town that becomes a scorched landscape before the action moves to a Los Angeles of toppling buildings and residents willing to throw their neighbors to the aliens if they need to, to survive. It's a depiction of post-war prosperity as fragile and possibly short-lived. Is it a coincidence that Hungarian-born producer George Powell had fled Europe as fascism grew? Maybe. About those aliens, they're pitiless and terrifying, arriving in death machines equipped with probes bottled after their own three-part eyes. Credit for their design belongs to art director Albert Nozaki, who wanted to break away from the by-then-familiar flying saucers, but couldn't find a way to depict the walking tripods of Wells' novel. Nozaki created a new sort of science fiction nightmare tailor-made for the nuclear age in vehicles that hover as they rain down death from the sky, a threat that's both untouchable and inescapable. Unless, of course, there's some sort of divine intervention. The War of the Worlds ends on a brief but optimistic, maybe miraculous note. As our main characters turn to prayer, the Earth essentially rejects its own invaders who are equipped to conquer the planet, but not inhabit it. Humanity gets a second chance, at least what's left of it. Those watching the film might not be so lucky. Must be somebody in there. Who? Where'd you think they come from? How would I know? They're in some place. Mars is near the Earth right now. Happens every 18, 20 years, they say. Men from Mars. What do you think? Maybe these are not men. Not like us. Everything human doesn't have to look like you and me. If it's men from Mars, we ought to let them know we're friendly. Don't fool around with something when you don't know what it is. We'd be the first to make contact with them. See? We'd be in all the papers. How about that? We could show them we're friendly, huh? 
Uh, walk out there with a white flag. Hey, I, I, I got an old sugar sack in my car. War of the Worlds was not a runaway hit in 1953. It wasn't even the top grossing science fiction film of that year. That was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with uh, effects by Ray Harryhausen, uh, who was George Powell's friend, who actually tried to make his own version of the War of the Worlds a few years later. And if you if you had the Criterion disc, there's some really cool uh, test footage of Harryhausen's uh, version of the, of the Martian dying scene <laughs> from the end of the, of the story. Uh, but the film stuck around and became kind of a generational favorite. Uh, Steven Spielberg had his own copy, apparently, and used to screen it in, at his house. So where do you see its influence in, in science fiction? I, I, I'm, I'm phrasing it kind of broadly. We can talk about movies. We can also just kind of talk about science fiction in general. Well, this isn't science fiction per se, so uh, I'm immediately answering your question by not answering your question. <laughs> but it, it almost immediately occurred to me, like watching this, for what turns out to be the first time watching it all the way through, like I'd, I'd, it turns out I'd seen most of the alien stuff, but I, I don't know how I managed this. Uh, I, I don't think I'd ever sat down and watched this from beginning to end. And well, seeing... it is a very long movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kid, it is not. It is about eighty-five minutes long. <laughs> yeah, but I think because it's such a classic, I think I was I was literally exposed to some of the um, the alien stuff, like like in school, like in a, a fifth grade unit on science fiction, for instance, and in film classes, kind of like studying the history of, of special effects and that kind of thing. Not important. Important thing is. Watching this, I, I found myself thinking, oh, this is this is influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. This is cosmic horror. You have, you know, a, a cold and merciless alien intelligence that is incomprehensible, that hungers for mankind and that cannot be placated, that cannot be understood, that cannot be resisted. And then started thinking about it like, no, it's kind of the other way around. Lovecraft came after this and he is credited as, you know, kind of being the father of cosmic horror. But he was a reader of H.G. Wells. He was an admirer of H.G. Wells. And a lot of the ideas at play here, a lot of the tones at play here that really come across in the film through the the narration taken from Wells text and through just kind of the the overall like horrible oppressive tone of we're just watching the earth die and there's literally nothing we can do about it and in the end everything comes together through you know no virtue no strength of our own it's just sort of a, a cosmic joke almost that we're that we're rescued all of that feels very cosmic horror and you know cosmic horror ended up being such a huge influence on later horror later science fiction you know works being written even today yeah, I mean, I think I think it's sort of you think about what kind of encounter we would have with aliens if we ever did come across them, if if they did, you know, come to the Earth, and I, I feel like this is one way it could go, it, and it may be the most likely way it, it, it could go too. And and I, you know, I, I like the idea the idea that they that they can't be placated, they can't be negotiated with. The people who try are, are <laughs> vaporized and you can see their like almost like chalk outlines <laughs> left on the ground. It's a chilling image, but it but it also feels like, you know, the, the, the most potent representation of 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 this kind of an outcome. And I think the other thing that really kind of stands out to me, you know, about the the, the movie is is that kind of connection that it has with the real world and, and real world events and just the, the sort of the context of it and it is one of those cases where the use of stock footage the war footage 
especially you know it didn't feel like kind of a cheap sort of plug-in it was all it all felt extremely r- relevant and almost gave it a that kind of documentary quality or, or at least you know made the made made those connections to the uh to what we had just been through and what we could face in the future that much more explicit so there's that element of it too and i and i, and I feel like as the genre at least on on film kind of grew up and and uh you know it, it moved you know into the uh laser age i suppose you know that kind of engagement with reality you know only sort of increased and so the film's influence increased as well yeah we don't see many stories like this but we do this is a way to structure a disaster movie effectively with you end up with things like world war z maybe one of the more recent ones or uh, going back a little bit independence day this kind of like big overview of an entire world in flames an entire world under attack it's an interesting structure but like at heart not only is this cosmic horror it's a straight up disaster movie you know we we get the warning about it coming people don't listen and don't behave and then it comes and then you're just watching spectacle as people suffer and flee and uh, fall to their own hubris and and are destroyed and then you see people picking up in the aftermath it it doesn't feel that different from disaster movies from like towering inferno to i don't know san andreas yeah independence day was in my mind a lot watching this like i was like wow if podcasts existed and we had this podcast when independence day came out we definitely would have paired it with war of the worlds yeah. like there there's with like a monument that. destroying uh spacecraft <laughs> Right. Yeah, the so I mean, the I mean, the, reference there. the the use of an atomic bomb, the the, the militaristic element of it, um, which is both of those those latter two things are very tied up in what what Keith was talking about in, in the keynote and sort of like the you know being less than a decade removed from the war, and I I, I specifically I think the the use of the atomic bomb in this or use of an atomic bomb uh we're told it's 10 times more powerful than any one that was used before so i don't know if that's like specifically referencing the bombs dropped on nagasaki and hiroshima or just meant to evoke them but at any rate like sort of the the justification that we get for like this is our last resort it's the only last chance to save humanity before pushing that button as it, as it were feels very kind of wrapped up in you know where th- the atomic age was <laughs> at, at that point and it was also interesting to watch this as a I guess a science fiction and alien uh, story that that predated you know man in space you know we're, we're almost a full decade out from the first manned space flight it, it was it's almost like feels kind of quaint in the beginning where they're like laying out why the martians need to leave mars because they've ruined the planet and i was like well it's a good thing it's not 2022 <laughs> or they would not be happy with what they found here but uh but i digress but you know and they were kind of like getting a tour of all the planets of our solar system that like they could have gone to but not venus because i guess like venus wasn't really there wasn't much known about it at that time and much less anything beyond our solar system you know like like so much like science fiction and alien stories now is very wrapped up in the intergalactic and we can feel pretty confident that there are not other life forms in our solar system at this point in time so you know we we have to look even farther and we have a, a greater understanding of how vast the galaxy of space just all of it is than than we did then you know it doesn't necessarily change 
change the story at all, other than it being Martians. But it did kind of make it feel a little, a little smaller, a little more quaint. Uh, you know, I'm not going to use the D word <laughs> that Keith hates, but as far as like thinking about it in terms of influence, there are certain elements of the story that real life has outpaced. Keith, I'm curious for your take. I I think of you as maybe being more of a reader of like the pulp era of science fiction uh, than the rest of us, at least uh, having made your way through a big box of paperbacks uh, back in the day at the AV Club. I mean, do you do you see this as having an influence, I guess, on on other like 50s movies and books? Like, where do you see the influence? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was just the the, this, this film snatches a happy-ish ending <laughs> from from Total Disaster, which is straight out of the Wells' book. But, you know, it, it is really just takes you to the brink of, of utter catastrophe. So I was thinking, the first thing that comes to mind, and it's kind of relates to your cosmic horror thing, is is, is Quater Mass in the Pit and, and just just the, the Nigel Neal stuff in general, which is very, you know, variations on uh, you are a very small thing in the universe and and, and the, the world you know is about to, could very well come to an end or is, is much less significant than you think it, it is. And there's, there's definitely that that in it as well. But I mean, it's kind of like scanning through 50 science fiction movie titles and, and like there is, you know, it is both of its time and in, in many ways. I mean, I, I, I think of the main characters and things like this and, and uh, it came from outer space and, and, and a lot of and the thing to some degree is like basically being interchangeable. You know, square, square jawed science men and women uh, that can kind of drop from one movie to the other. So it's definitely that. But um, I, you know, fifty science fiction gets a little scarier after this. And I don't know to what degree influence can be directly traced to War of the Worlds, but I'm sure it definitely played a role as well. Well, yeah, because I mean, there's no real defeat of of the invading force here. You know, it just kind of happens. We lucked out. You know, uh, we can maybe get into the whole divine intervention aspect of it, which I was definitely thrown by. I had not seen this movie in full either and was uh, was not expecting it to end on a church congregation singing <laughs> Amen, but, you know, <laughs> maybe another uh, sign sign of the, the times, as, as it were. But the fact that it's like nothing that humanity does to save itself and that they are eff- effectively screwed, like it's pretty bleak, <laughs> you know, it's only this development outside anyone's control that saves them. And and I think that that is scary. You know, it's it's scarier than a than a big monster that can be destroyed with a big bomb and, and planes that can shoot it down, you know. So maybe that's where it was a, a step forward in terms of the horror uh, aspect of science fiction. About that ending, there is a George Powell. George Powell before this is... is- he broke through with stop motion animation called Puppetoons, uh, which are a lot of fun, except for the ones that are incredibly racist. Uh, but he did one called <laughs> Tulip Shall Grow in 1942, which was basically a metaphor for uh, Holland being overrun by Nazis. And in the end, the characters hide in a church and it, but, but like sort of like these mechanical men. So like in the end, the characters hide in a church and it starts to rain, and the rain rusts them. So they're saved from destruction at the last minute uh, by nature while they hide in their church. So he'd kind of done this ending before in some ways. I mean, that part of the film is the most effective and surprising for me is is, uh, because, I mean, I think we're we're sort of trained as moviegoers to, you know, that when we follow these heroes dashing around, and then one of those, they're scientists, and and they have 
you presumably have some answers to this terrible daunting problem and you know ultimately it doesn't really affect what happens at all i mean that's a pretty bold thing for a movie to do it's not no one no one the president is not getting in a plane uh, to fight the <laughs> the the aliens at any point and and um you know for this for this to ha- happen as as it does is is uh you know such a such a unsettling kind of miracle i mean i think i think we you end the film with that like you know of course that sense of relief that that the re- what remains of humanity is spared but that's that feeling of of helplessness of 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 a lack of control over over this apocalyptic event is um i mean that 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 stays with you as well and i, I think that's an extremely bold you know thing for a movie to do or, or to not revise i suppose from the wells yeah because I, I was gonna say like the like what takes the aliens down is from the wells text but the film adds on this layer of prayer and specifically like christian re- religion and there's a multiple priests in here and like i said it ends on amen like there, there's definitely a stronger layering of western religious practice on top of this ending than there was in in the wells which is decidedly and, not from hg wells who who was not uh right. who described himself as an, as an atheist right and and that is more what took me aback so it's been a long time since I read War of the Worlds. Is is the part where England is the the most strategically important and most uh, valuable country in the on on the planet? No, straight out of Wells, because that that just felt like a little uh, English pride. The Wells is set in London, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I thought it was like a nod to that, but also it, it felt sort of like the shadow of World War Two that is cast over over a lot of this movie, and just sort of the the role that London and the UK played during that time. So that that's how I read it, less than sort of a generalized puffing up of of England. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just that we don't we don't see a whole lot of England's importance. We just get the narration about mm-hmm. you know how even even the unfathomable aliens recognize the incredible strategic importance and value <laughs> of Britain and and focus their attentions there, ignoring the relatively unimportant U.S. Capitol building because who yeah. cares about that. I think it's really time you stop bringing your anti-English agenda to this podcast, Asha. (laughs) (laughs) The mocking tone with which you speak of. Anyway, carry on. It's just an inherent hatred of uh, of tea, tea and all things tea. (laughs) What about crumpets? Where do you stand on crumpets? Oh, crumpets are crumpets are fine. Um, Scones are far better, though. Wow. As far as uh, what we're talking about in terms of the just the incredible helplessness of humanity in this film, and as far as kind of talking about the influence, one of the things I see here that I don't feel uh, got carried over very much that I don't feel like I've seen in a whole lot of science fiction, apart from cosmic horror, is the aliens complete indifference to us. Like there's so much science fiction that's just kind of predicated in the fear of like, what if we weren't the alpha predators? You know, what if there was something like bigger and more ferocious than us that wanted to treat us like we treat animals? So you have, you know, movies like Alien where they they want to lay their eggs inside of us or even the 2005 War of the Worlds. You have the aliens like collecting people like harvesting them for use in their their Martian forming process. You know, the idea of people being used, people being like possessed in the the other movie called The Host. 
or turned into batteries in the matrix or, or whatever it is. We're very afraid of being used as food or resources or, you know, building materials or whatever it is. But here, they just don't care about humanity at all. They evaporate everybody they see. They are only interested in the land. And that kind of speaks to maybe a, a cultural anxiety, for instance, about how Native Americans were treated when settlers got here, or, you know, any other number of historical genocides from people just coming in to take the land. But it's not something I see in science fiction very often. It's in Wells. I sort of the, the parallels with colonialism are definitely in, in the book. I, I haven't read it in years, but, but but I do remember that and have read that, you know, in researching this, that that was sort of in, in, in the text there as well. But even British colonialism, you know, typically was about coming in and pretending that they were there to civilize the natives or to uh, proselytize to the natives, to straighten the natives up and make sure that they they used their resources correctly, you know, while while taking a, a cut for good old blighty. Like it wasn't like, let's go to India, kill every single Indian and take India as as the land like their colonialism was just a very different thing. Like here, it's just it's it's clear cutting. Basically, you sh you show up, you decide that all these trees are in the way, and you cut them down to get rid of them. And instead of using the lumber, you burn them. Like that's what we're seeing. And again, that's just something I don't see in sci-fi very often. But there's that connect. I mean, the connection is is just finding a whole class of being in inferior, though. I mean, mm -hmm. it, you know, uh, that that's the connection. What's what's interesting to me is the aliens themselves i mean we have i you know i wouldn't necessarily describe the aliens and alien as creatures of superior intelligence they're just incredible hunters right uh, um mm -hmm. but here i think there that is the difference of just like this this is a they found their way to our our planet <laughs> they, they have this technology that we cannot fathom and and, and there's just such a massive distance between uh humanity and and whatever highly you know intelligent alien form uh these these uh you know martians are taking that that um were nothing to them which is kind of why i think i i'm definitely sort of a glass half empty type of person when it comes to the the potential of alien encounters because it seems like this just always always seemed like the more plausible outcome of just of of vaporizing or study or just you know i didn't see it close the close encounters is, ends up being kind of a fanciful vision this seems more likely to me always i always think of that moment in in, in the original cosmos where carl sagan's talking about there would be no star wars one one civilization would be superior to the other and then eliminate the other or whatever, whatever i'm misquoting it but that was that <laughs> yeah. was sort of uh, the the idea yeah, I do think it's interesting just how often the narration here emphasizes their intellectual superiority. It's not just technological superiority. It's they're they're smarter than us, you know, not they've had longer to develop or, you know, they're they're scientists like lucked into a particular way of, of bending muons or whatever it is. It's just straight up emphasized over and over and over like they're smarter than us, uh, which, again, is an interesting approach, especially in a movie that keeps aiming at that very 50s uh, idea of, all right, well, hand this over the brainiacs like the scientists will use like modern 50s science and figure out the way out of this. And they, they keep trying to move in that direction. And it just it never happens. They never get the chance to. I don't know if the movie really sells their intellectual superiority, though, to be to, to be fair. <laughs> they have big weapons. But you know, I, I don't. You know, I, I don't necessarily see it. I mean, they had to make those weapons. That's true. Yeah. That's true. 
Well, they do have a. You gotta get a lot of credit for getting here. I mean, they they do have a war strategy that like very smart uh, military mm. uh, people admire and and feel like they couldn't have anticipated and like praise, you know, very very uh, you know do not praise the machine <laughs> kind of feeling of like oh my gosh they're so smart like look at this tactic they use it's brilliant it's really great. But apparently they know very little about biology or germ theory. So big hole in their intellect there. <laughs> that Martian is getting totally fired for uh, for not uh, <laughs> not doing uh, not for for kind of cheating on the environmental study. Um, you had you had one job. I have to say I have to say I'm not I'm not thinking he, we're bringing the best of hu- humanity uh, to the uh, occasion when uh, w- one of them has the idea that waving a white flag might be <laughs> resonant in some way. <laughs> Oh, the, it's, that's a that's a galactic symbol for, uh, for Scott. For, uh, everybody uh, knows what hap- what what it means when you put a potato sack on a on a stick. <laughs> that's just it's a galactic standard. Come on, it's universal. But that that scene is interesting to me as one of a couple scenes we get of people being like, well, maybe they're not here to destroy us. Maybe they just want to communicate. There's also the the priest, although he seems to go into it with a little more awareness that it is probably not going to work out for him. But he does like put it in the context of like, maybe we should try communicating with them first. So, you know, the fact that we have those scenes of, you know, people acknowledging that maybe this isn't uh, the invasion we, we think it is, and then makes it clear that, yes, it is, I think, underlines sort of that feeling that Tasha was talking about, about just like them being hellbent on destruction and, and nothing else. You know, it makes that come through stronger. As far as the aliens, uh, you know, not being all that bright, given that they don't know about bacteria, I mean, that's that kind of comes from the place of their completely alien intellects. You know, they they know what they know. They don't know what they don't know. But humanity in this movie comes across as kind of dumb. So they maybe they don't have to be too smart. Like, you must be this smart to conquer this planet, <laughs> but not necessarily smarter than that. Because, you know, this this movie has a pretty cynical take on people. Like, it's it's kind of the old, you know, the old thing. Like, a person is smart, but people are dumb. You have your heroes who you sympathize with and, and care for and worry about. But you also just have, like, crazed mobs that, like, literally destroy a possible means of salvation out of panic and in the end everybody just kind of falls back on this like very sentimental hope that uh you know god will save them like we we don't have to save ourselves we just have to pray extra hard which i don't know uh where people want to want to land on a religion or how far we want to dig into that but this feels like it ends up feeling like a very sentimental movie that's kind of kind of goes to a place of we're kind of dumb, clumsy animals. We're warlike. We're belligerent. We don't know what we're doing, but it's okay because God will save us. Or germs. Or God. <laughs> yeah, well, who, yeah, and who made the germs? We're expressly told that we have germs because God was wise enough to put them in the, in the atmosphere. Thanks, yeah. God. And and as far as like how we feel about the the film's handling of it, like I I don't I have no problem with the invocation of God there. In fact, I think that that line comes from the Wells. But I think where that sentimentality comes from 
is, as you say, Tasha, like in those church scenes and the prayer and the singing and sort of all the the trappings of, of, of Western religion. And I personally was not a fan of that, but also, you know, that's very baked into my own religious convictions or, or lack thereof. So I definitely like had a bit of a wrinkled nose reaction <laughs> to, to, to all of that. But I don't like object on principle to the invocation of God in, in this solution, if that distinction makes sense. Well, since we opened a can of worms known as religion, we're going to have to like uh, spend a little time uh, dealing with that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back to talk about uh, <laughs> worms everywhere. God and aliens after the break. <laughs> humbly beseech thy divine guidance, O Lord. Deliver us from the fear which has come upon us, from the evil that grows ever nearer, from the terror that soon will knock upon the very door of this thy house. O Lord, we pray thee, grant us the miracle of thy divine intervention. And we're back. We, we were, uh, I, I believe we left off with Tasha about to explain uh, God to us, or or at least uh, God's relation to <laughs> All right. Worlds. I'm excited. <laughs> Finally. Okay. So, you know, there's this this magical sky person. Uh, no, uh, the, the thought that I had about this is that, for me, maybe the big problem with the way religion is used in this film is it just gets a little narratively repetitive. Like, I, I goes actually, to so many churches. I, I kind of liked the numerous churches. When Dr. Forrester said, I know exactly where Sylvia will go, and then just charged into the nearest intact church, I was prepared for him to find her there and to think, okay, that's kind of a coincidence in a town this big. And the fact that she wasn't there, but there are a mob of people there, and that everywhere he goes where he can find an intact church, there are mobs of people hiding and pastors and priests and what have you taking over and and just kind of like leading people in frantic prayer appealed to me the the fact that it acknowledged that you know in a in a very unmovie like way frankly that the nearest building isn't necessarily where the other character is so the scenes of him just like running frantically around the town looking into any any intact church he could find i found that evocative and maybe more real than a lot of of alien invasion movies get even leading aside the science fiction elements you know they tend to be very very packaged and very slick and this just kind of had a lumpiness that actually did feel like what it would be like to navigate a disaster so i, I like that aspect of it but the amount of time that it spends specifically on people singing hymns and on like pastors delivering messages it does start to bog down the movie a bit, I think, because it's it's repetitive. You know, it's apart from finding the scientists in the second church, not a whole lot new is conveyed uh, by the time we get to the third church. Well, what about the fourth church? What about what about that one? <laughs> the fourth church is right out. The fifth church, pretty good. Sixth, seventh, and eighth, mm, you know. One thing we have to talk about is is the effects. I'm, of course, famously do not like to use the word data when referring to effects. Uh, and I, I can point this as a good example of why, which is I, I think obviously there are limitations to the effects, but I think they're very effective within the context of this film. And I really think 
there's scenes that are just completely overwhelming too, both with images. Like I think the Los Angeles destruction scenes are really quite well done, but also just the sound, the way the sound design is so overwhelming on this. And like so many of what we now think of as sort of standard science fiction laser and pew pew noises or whatever uh, seem to have originated here. You know, speaking of the, its influence, that's sort of another area as well. What, what did you think of the effects here? I really enjoyed them. Uh, one in particular stuck out to me because I could tell exactly how it was achieved practically. And that actually, I think, made me like it more. Um, and I'm talking about the force fields mm. over the ships, mm-hmm. the sort of like bell jars that's very clearly like sort of a mat- matting uh, effect, you know. But it just, it's just, it's such a elegant solution for for making a force field and it it, like it absolutely works and i think like sometimes with older practical effects some of the pleasure is in seeing the craft that goes into achieving them and it's it's kind of easier to recognize than billions of pixels on a screen with with computer generated effects you know so there's a certain pleasure i think in in recognizing those and then just the fact that they they look good on top of it you know i felt the same way about the the match cut effect that would have people getting hit by the frap rays and dissolving and just leaving behind like untouched empty space mm-hmm. you know I, a lot of times with with that kind of effect you can get like a very a very slightly jarring the camera wasn't really quite in the same place for the second shot but these are very clean and it, it really does feel like those people are just eradicated from existence like leaving a world behind that is just completely untouched by their absence and i found that chilling and i also found the like the close-up shot when the general gets frapped and you see his death register on his face and then you're stuck with him for a, a few key seconds as he fades to a skeleton and then fades away entirely like that's that's pretty good horror right there I was glad that they did that shot because until that point, I, was, I wasn't really understanding why they were calling it a skeleton ray. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's why it's a skeleton ray. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know really what, what to yeah. add other than I did I did like you know, so the design of the, um, you know, the, the eye or whatever. the, the Yeah, the, sort of the television camera with yeah, those, right. with the three yeah, colors. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, like a t- tube TV or something. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that that that's interesting, and I, and also you know when when you get to the um, smaller ships themselves, um, uh, you know uh, the the look of those and the sort of co- color and everything involved in, in that is uh, attractive. What do we think of the the very brief glimpse we get of full body alien? I think the the hands are are Spindly. used pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The little um, and, the little yeah. like yeah. It's a, it's it's probably the least convincing moment. <laughs> uh, it's it's. I, I like the like the sort of like now much imitated like brief glimpse of the thing running. You know, like we you like did I did mm-hmm. I see something? But when you see it full on, it's it's a little. It's a. It's, yeah. it's not quite. It's not great. It's very fifties rubber suit. It's mm. it's not yeah. very convincing, and that's it's interesting because the the shot of the just the like the one flimsy arm like slowly flexing and releasing as the the first alien to die is dying, and then the pretty sharp close up as Doctor Forrester is examining it, 
And like that thing looks like a modern day practical effect just in terms of how textured it is, how you can see like little veins pulsing and then cease to pulse and the skin on the surface of mm-hmm. it like slowly tightening as, as it dies. Like that is some remarkable like detailed prosthetic work there. I'm just curious if any of you uh, have more information than me about like the 4K restoration and okay, well, great. Then uh, Keith, why don't you tell us more about the 4K restoration and how it changed the effects or did or not? Yeah, it was a revelation (laughs) to see it when it came out on on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, because there it was definitely a film in which you could see the wires and you can see the wires a little bit and and then this version as well. And there's some also clever touches like filming the spacecraft against a backdrop of telephone wires so you could just use those wires and they're part of the, the scenery as well. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the thing was, it looked like it was supposed to. The version, it's a, it's a three-strip Tetacolor film and the prints were Tetacolor as well, the ones on first release. And then they were, they were, were put, what was put in circulation tend to be like these Eastman color things, which were cheaper, uh, but they were not, the color palette wasn't as dark. So like things that, details that were never meant to be seen uh, were brought out by the increased brightness. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly what showed up on uh, television, which is where I first saw this as a kid, um, and then you know VHS and, and DVD and so on until this restoration, which is I think you know a true restoration in the sense like wow this is this is movie this movie looks like something something I'd never seen before and I, I yeah it, it's it's um I think it's the only version that's out there now yeah I saw mean, no wires for my part I didn't either and I actually thought that the effect of the the eyeball tentacle like slowly oozing its way into the the crashed house was pretty impressive like from the movement mm-hmm. of it i could intuit the wires but it just it seemed like a very seamless effect to me and you know pretty effective in terms of that thing moving in such a way as you know just you don't really think of technology as moving like the 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 big heavy eye just obviously not seeming to have weight as the whole thing glides in. Uh, I, I thought that was a pretty cool and an alien way of moving that thing. So we, we've talked about the aliens. There are humans in this film as, as, as well. Um, <laughs> I, I find the characters, I mean, I, you know, they're, they're, they're well played by Gene Barry and Anne Robinson, and the others, but, but they're not, colorful characters are they are they well they're played? fine they're fine uh nothing wrong nothing wrong with them um but uh, they're nothing well, okay uh well i it's, you know, they're working with what they got i think in, in this yeah. in this instance where where clearly the human characters were of secondary concern but i mean they also as i alluded to before they feel like they could come from any number of other 50s science fiction movies like the you know the the, the square jawed scientist and 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 his lady who's also a scientist but a very very soft science yeah. so as not to threaten the male <laughs> yes, scientist exactly. library science <laughs> also the science of admiration of men right mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Something that where she does not have to encounter blood because the the mere mention of blood drives her into hysterics. That that that, that was the one scene where I was like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> what is 
why why is she upset like there's blood on this fabric not she she, first of all she loves that scarf and she just doesn't know where she's going to get another one and second of all she doesn't have a master's degree in blood genevieve i mean no no i'm 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 right there with you i i have the same response because her introduction uh was so surprising to me just in terms of she clearly knows her science you know she can rattle off uh this guy's curriculum vitae because she has her master's because she did this thesis because she's done all this research she presents herself as very capable and very educated but also just like very bright in a a personality kind of Mm -hmm. way you know she's just she's just like a package of smart like kind of sexy kind of like fun appeal like the kind of person you don't see a lot of scientists in 1950s science fiction that can go have fun at the square dance you know they (laughs) they mostly stand around in lab coats and and giant thick uh coke bottle glasses saying you know well the transposition of the neutronium flow tells us that you know or whatever so the fact that she just so completely breaks down um, and just kind of kind of falls into uh, save me hero thing is is kind of depressing. Although I will confess to having emotions over that moment where they've had their their plane crash and mm-hmm. she's passed out after and he's holding her in his lap and she slowly wakes up and is like pleased and and comforted to see him and then you you see her come back to reality Mm -hmm. uh and i i think that's just a really well played moment that really sells the horror and she kind of has a moment of feeling like ashamed or that she shouldn't be as upset as she is and and he's like no this is really traumatic it's okay that you're freaked out you know you know i I realize it's kind of contradictory with what i just said about her freaking out about blood but i do appreciate sort of the acknowledgement of like even a you know the most hardened scientist you know may not take this that well you know it's a lot you know no matter how how well trained a scientist you may be well we are not well-trained scientists we are we, we are orbit, but, but humble movie commentators Speak for yourself um, I, have, I, 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 have my, I did horrible I have my master's in, in admiring male scientists i did a thesis on that well for my part i have encountered blood before I know, Ooh, just wow fancy well, we have lots more to talk about with war of the worlds i'm sure in relation to uh nope uh that is for next week however we're gonna take a short break we'll be right back with feedback Now we're back with feedback, and we're really happy to report that we're getting a lot more since moving the segment back to the show. Email us your questions or comments at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Uh, this week, we received a few short, compelling questions that we're going to do something a little differently with this episode. I'll be throwing them out to my co-host in a kind of lightning round. Question one. This one comes from Patrick in North Carolina. I am charmed and amused by the IP cameos in Roger Rabbit and Chip and Dale, but I'm annoyed and slightly offended by the IP cameos in Ready Player One. Am I just a hypocrite? Nah. No. Nope. <laughs> Straight up nope. I, I was going to say you might be, but I think we're all the same kind of hypocrite, so it's okay. It's, no, it, it's, you're not, you're not a hypocrite. But, I'm going to give you two more nuanced reasons why uh, you're not a hypocrite. One is that a studio going out of its way to cooperate with other studios to bring in other studios' IP and promote them so you can have a world where Donald Duck and, and Daffy Duck like live together and, and play dueling pianos is charming. 
a studio just mining its own IP to show it off and uh, and make brand deposits is kind of sticky and gross. That is a very different situation. But also there's a really big difference between, hey, here's a world where tunes are real and all of these tunes are walking around versus having a narrator brag to you incessantly about how much he loves his Knight Rider car with the... Back to the Future bat wings and the, you know, kit light in front of it going back and forth and just all of this, uh, all, all of this garbage that comes with Ready Player One in the form of what an insufferable protagonist it has both in the book and the film. There's a really big difference between here are a bunch of other video game characters in the background of Wreck-It Ralph to make this world more real and somebody like grabbing you by the shoulders and, and making egregious, like creepy uh, ancient Mariner eye contact and saying, look at my stuff. Look at the <laughs> stuff I got for this movie. Look, look, here it is. My Pokemons, look at them. Everyone did great on round one. Next round two, <laughs> Kit. After heartily recommending the Moulin Rouge stage show, ask a question. If the Moulin Rouge film and Elvis's release years were swapped, how do you think this film would be received today by audiences? I think just as well, right? Moulin Rouge? Be a hit again. Yeah. I don't feel like that like one era would have a different response to either. I mean, there are de- definitely films where I think if you s- swap them that you'd get a different result, but I mean, the, the, I think we kind of talked about Baz being Baz in the, you know, in the, with the with both, you know, in 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 Elvis and and uh that that film is doing quite well and people really like it and so I think think Milan Rouge would also do really well and people would like it. What do you all think? I'm mostly trying to think of what four pop stars today would be would do Lady Marmalade. Oh, oh, oh! You're saying oh, oh, wow. you're yeah. saying a different film then, <laughs> and then we would have then we would have to have different different. We would not have Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman, so so that it, it becomes completely different. Yeah, would we have like we Justin Bieber? We don't have, in we the... don't have MTV as well. I mean, MTV was such a huge yeah. Moulin Rouge. You know, I mean that that Lady Marmalade thing was that that was kind of the organ that promoted that film for such a long time because it was such I guess, a hit. I guess I find myself visualizing like a, a Justin Bieber Lady Gaga version <laughs> of uh, Moulin Rouge and you know not Why? not loving it. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yes, why those yeah, two? stop stop doing that. Well, the, Gaga could be good. I, I, I can see. I can... No, it, 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 it'd be like Billie Eilish, uh, Megan The Stallion. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, oh, oh no, no, I'm, I'm talking oh. about the the main the rose. Oh, oh, the main. Oh, I like yes. I like what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, the the Billie Eilish, Megan The Stallion. That would be together again for the very first time. What about Elvis? How, how yeah, would Elvis do in 2001? Rundown. Yeah, but but I, I think it's interesting that like we're talking and thinking about like how the film would be promoted you know just because Lerman he's such a commercial director and and that like mixes really well with advertising and marketing you, you know like I, I don't know I know you guys aren't on the the same socials as I am but I'm seeing Elvis like all over Instagram and TikTok you know like it's a very it's very much being promoted there you know and I think a lot of that is done intentionally by, by the studio and we talked about how the uh lady marmalade the music video played such a huge part in the moulin rouge phenomenon so it, it is kind of interesting to think of how the the marketing machines behind these two movies would be different okay so then maybe you can answer the the question that kind of bubbled up in my head uh a moment ago which is 
I feel like Moulin Rouge being like one of these like big bright musicals about, you know, it's it's dark too, but it's it's full of like big bright set pieces um, that would play very well out of context in in clips on all of these social media services. And I definitely see it showing up on TikTok with, you know, people doing duets with Ewan McGregor um, singing <laughs> your song or, or what have you. Oh my you. God, that would, yes, that would very much be a thing. <laughs> Sorry. I, I would think that Moulin Rouge would lend itself to that kind of, uh, you know, creative consumption, um, you know, uh, like parasocial creation, <laughs> maybe more so than Elvis. I My instinct is just that like, even the most musical loving TikTok duetters are maybe would be more engaged with Moulin Rouge's love story than with the history of Elvis. But maybe I'm wrong. Like, are are people engaging on their own um, on these on these platforms with Elvis's set pieces? Or maybe that doesn't happen until it's available on streaming or, or video yeah. and people can start yeah. cutting it up. Yeah, I'm mostly seeing people engaging with the music and the soundtrack, which, again, would apply to Moulin Rouge. We have one final question. This one's from Meg. It's from the Grizzly Man episode. This one might take a little thought, so don't answer right away. Who told it better? The coroner describing Treadwell's final moments or Quint describing the aftermath of the wreck of the Indianapolis? Candid versus scripted. Half-board interest in food versus black eyes like a doll's eyes. Well, I have to point out here uh, pedantically that half-board interest in food is Herzog yes. all, all the way. That is not the, the coroner. So so I'm going to say, but I will say, and I just saw Jaws with my family over the weekend. The girls had never seen it before. They're <laughs> 14-year-old. There are like a good like three or four just straight-up jump scares in that movie, and and my 14 year old just like screamed it was so great <laughs> um anyway so the uh i would say quint describing the aftermath of the record of indianapolis is kind of untouchable uh so and i would then go scripted on that uh but i don't know then it becomes a, t- a tough one because you know I-, I was doing doing a very poor quint impersonation all weekend talking and uh, doing that speech for, uh, to amuse my family I'm not going to do it here. And then, and then, but, but, I, but the, the phrase half board interest in, in food, I mean, that, that's, that's stuck with me ever since I've seen Grizzly Man. It's, it's how I tend to th- think about it. If I want to think about nature the way Herzog does, that's the phrase I always turn to. So I'm going to, I'm going I'm to give Herzog the edge on that and then, uh, and Jaws the edge on the other ones. I refuse to make this choice because I think they're both doing such profoundly different things and they're both really keen and and interesting, like insightful moments into very different aspects of humanity. Like leaving aside Herzog talking about half-board interest in food and, and focusing entirely on the coroner, there is a lurid glee that he brings to that uh, description that it's tamped down under a kind of an attempted air at professionalism, but he gets way too far into the just the really, really gory details. And whether it's because he's excited at being able to to describe this scene that nobody else saw, or whether it's just that he's like excited to be talking to a, a famous movie maker, doesn't really matter. Like one way or the other, he's engaged in like a horror scenario in an, an audience-like way that I just think is or says says some really fascinating things about the car wreck like 
gazing way that we engage with catastrophe and the way that we're fascinated by death. Whereas Quint talking about the experience of the Indianapolis, we talked a lot when we wrote about Jaws for the Dissolve and when we talked about Jaws here on the podcast about how that film explores and channels different kind of masculinity. And the masculinity of Quint very quietly, very calmly, but very fervently describing one of the most horrible experiences of his life and an experience where even he is probably not sure why he's alive is just, I, I don't know, it, it speaks to me on a, a really fundamental level about how men are allowed to process trauma, you know, in, in modern American culture, modern being a very, you know, large block. The way that he allows himself to tell that story only because he can tell it without emotion um, and calmly and only to other men in private and only while drinking, just it speaks to the way that men tell war stories in private. And I, I think it's a, a spectacular uh, and, and thoughtful moment on film. So these two things are just they're they're apples and oranges. They're both great. I, I refuse to put them on a scale against each other. I think you got. Yeah, I think that's fair. But if you did put him in against one another, I Shaw obviously has it. That's just one of the great moments. But the fact that we have spent this much time talking about it, you, you got to give respect to the coroner. You know, I, I think that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say I picked the coroner just because I saw it more recently and I'm, I'm giving into recency bias. So. <laughs> you have to pick something, Tasha. This is this is like people who al alphabetize their top 10 lists. I, first of all, uh, we over at, at Polygon, we do not put numbers on them Whoa, and we do not count down. No. So bite me. We alphabetize our, our top wow. 10 lists. And second of all, uh, I, I can do what I want. I can do what I feel like. And what I feel like is, you know, not not giving in to the urge to turn everything into a pissing contest. Um, you're, not you're everything needs to be ranked. Some things can just be an inventory. Yeah. <laughs> the coroner and Quint, you're both very pretty. We admire you both very much. You're you're both very nice, ni very good boys. <laughs> my my take 15 on this, out of 10 I would, would rank, watch again. I would rank number one and I would rank your take on this number two. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, you, you've got a history of thinking a lot of my opinions are number two, so... Well, there, there's no better way to end this, I don't think. Uh, uh, and again, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this in future episodes. We're expecting a lot of nope questions. Uh, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. In our next episode, we'll discuss Jordan Peele's nope, in which an alien invasion, if that's the right word, takes a much different form than that of War of the Worlds. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, keep watching the skies. That's actually from a different movie, but after the War of the Worlds, it just seems like pretty good advice. Two little men in a flying saucer Flew down to earth one day Looked to left and right of it Couldn't stand the sight of it And said, let's fly away They took a look at a western movie Somebody heard them say If a horse can be a star Think how dumb the people are We'd better fly away